Hi everyone, how's it going? How is your War of the Darkness Berlin? Good. Good? Good. Excellent? Alright, cool. So yeah, uh, I'm Mike and this is Chris. Uh, we do Darker Days Radio, which is a pretty cool uh, War of the Darkness podcast. We also talk about some other stuff occasionally, little Iron Kingdoms, Warhammer, and that kind of stuff. But we're mostly focused on the World of Darkness and of course, Chronicles of Darkness as well. So can I just get like a quick poll, uh, just out of curiosity, who here is into World of Darkness? Okay, good. <laughs> who here is into Chronicles of Darkness? Ooh, okay. interesting. Tough this is going to be a pretty spicy presentation here. <laughs> right. Because what we're going to do is we're going to uh, kind of draw you into the Chronicles of Darkness setting. Because uh, it has a lot of very similar themes, atmosphere, and can really help influence and give you new ideas for your World of Darkness game. So the basic structure of this presentation is going to be just a real quick overview of what Chronicles Darkness is. Then we will uh, give you some ideas for Vampire the Masquerade and Vampire the Requiem. Then we'll move on to Werewolf. And then finally, Mage. Yeah, peanut butter and jelly. Um, the reason we say that is because, as Mike said, Chronicles of Darkness and World of Darkness share common themes, some common moods. And you can borrow and interchange things between both games. But Given that this is a World of Darkness convention, fan festival, we were looking more into how you can use elements of Chronicle Darkness in your World of Darkness games to do a remix. Because there may be things, even now, you may go, I don't really like that in that interpretation of Changeling, that interpretation of Vampire, but I have some ideas that come from these other games. Or you may not know of these ideas, and we may have something new for you. So we'll look at some how we can use some of the law, some of the splats, some of the political factions, powers, monsters. And the main thing is there's the translation guides, which are available. Yeah, uh, Vampire, the Masquerade, Werewolf, uh, the Apocalypse, Mage of the Ascension, and also Demon the Fallen have these translation guides between World of Darkness and Chronicles of Darkness as well. So they let you basically just interchange the rules, setting elements, and give you a lot of guidance, and they're pretty great. Um, so the first thing when you consider that you want to do this is which engine do you want to use because obviously there are subtle differences between the two game systems uh, and the translation guides have allow you to make that choice. So if you want to use stuff from Chronicles of Darkness using the World of Darkness rule set, it's available. And if you want to do it the other way, you can also do that. And it has ideas on how you can make those changes. So um, I think it's weird things like if you play Mage the Ascension, but you want to use the magic system from Awakening, it has how you can approach the fact that you've now got 10 Arcanum, Arcanum versus the Spheres, which are 9. Okay, So there's some subtle changes there to do with death and entropy. Um, but ultimately, it's up to you what you want to use. And the great thing is why I would, if you want to explore a very mortal game in the world of darkness, maybe you want to think of Chronicles of Darkness as your main engine because it does the mortals game very well. It's a very base level game. And that's because everything else is hung off it. Now, hopefully, from what we've heard of V5, that might be the case going forward. So, a Requiem for Masquerade, what the hell do we mean by that? So, one of the last books that came out for Revised was the Storyteller's Handbook. Who's read that? Anyone awesome. know what was fun in there? 
the Talmahera in the back, revised, mm -hmm. true black hands, spirit one, nukes. I think one of the suggestions was um, getting rid of generation. Uh, that wasn't there, yeah. There were a couple of small alternate rules, yeah. So there were, again, it was already right at the tail end of revised, they were suggesting how to make the game your own. Like, yeah, they've told their story. White Wolf has told their story. It's now allowing you to tell your interpretation, your remix to fit to, to tell the game that you think your players may well enjoy a lot more and to make it really your own. So using Requiem, we can look at how we can possibly diversify some of the factions by using the Covenants, uh, diversify some of the powers. I don't know about you, uh, if you've looked at Requiem and you've played a bit of it, I think one of my favorite disciplines is Nightmare for the Nosferatu. It doesn't exist in Masquerade and it's about using fear as a, as a weapon. Um, diversifying clans. Requiem's pretty good for that, isn't it, Mike? Well, yeah, so the, uh, the traditional thing that we, we usually say about Requiem versus Masquerade is that the Masquerade clans are very much, you know, revised in, in previous. They're stereotypes, right? You know, the Bruja is a very, uh, you know, uh, rabble rouser, anarchy, maybe a, some sort of a, a gang of, of some sort. But in Vampire the Requiem, the clans are much more archetypes. The Ventru are now just the, uh, the figure, the imposing image of that uh, hilltop lord, uh, but now translated into the modern knights, as opposed to the Nosferatu, which is just a nightmarish creature, not specifically ugly in Vampire the Requiem. Uh, they just exude a uh, fearful horror. Yeah. So again, they can represent the idea you walk past like flowers and they just you know wilt as you go. Um, or you have the smell of the grave around you. So that means you can look at those clans and then from there, if you want something that's a bit more specific, you can make use of the bloodline rules, which in Requiem are quite well developed, so you can design a clan that you enjoy. Um, so that means if you want, you know, the first thing you can go is, well, I don't really like the Setites, but I might take the, uh, the Mecha from Requiem, because they're kind of cool. They've got an Egyptian history to them. They do something very cool, which is in Requiem, which is they can do post-death embraces, so long as the person has been embalmed, which is a very big feature of Requiem. Uh, you've also got uh, interesting, you can make some of the, the, the Masquerade clan's bloodlines and vice versa, you can look at that. So again, we, there are lots of different options you can make use of. Um, does anyone have a clan they like or a bloodline they think if you've played Requiem that you think would might work in Masquerade? Uh, I'm trying to think of it. There's the Burakamin, who are who are a uh, kind of a an underdog class from Japan. They're a Nosferatu uh, bloodline. So you can explore how you you can you you can make these bloodlines fit certain ethnic groups if that's what their background is or certain powers and see how they branch from each of the clans. Um, but yeah, if you, essentially the idea is, have, if you've looked at the Storyteller's Handbook, there are ideas in there, but I think maybe those ideas are easier explored using Chronicles of Darkness um, to, with Masquerade to build and exploit those ideas. Yeah. Now, real quick, uh, we didn't really touch on the Covenants too much. So the uh, Vampire of the Requiem political structure has the clans, but instead of having the hot war between the Sabbat and the Camarilla, uh, instead, you have these five covenants, which are slightly smaller in scale. Uh, they have very regionalized powers. And, uh, for example, if you go to the Circle of the Crone, 
uh, in the United States, maybe around Salem. They might be uh, more Wiccan and uh, neo-pagan um, in that form. But if you come to Germany, you might have much more uh, Nordic elements. Just to kind of show you that uh, these are not monolithic organizations. I would say even even in a single city, you will have multiple. You can have rival cults. So there are examples of that in certain books. Uh, even that book, there's the example of Bath in the UK. You'll have a, a cult that's maybe more um, more pagan in nature, that's more Celtic in nature, but also it's it has a rivalry with another Croat cult that is perhaps more based upon a resurgence of Egyptian mythology. The one may be more modern than the other because obviously you know. Modern paganism doesn't have a long lineage from the original pagan roots, but you know, being vampires, some of them may do have that. The thing that ties them together is that Kruak as a, as a form of uh, thaumaturgy, or as a form of blood magic, is the thing that ties them together. And getting to Kruak, Kruak is not limited to one specific clan. It can be learned by really any vampire, as long as you know who to teach you, which would happen to be these guys. Right. So. By having these, uh, these covenants, which can involve any clan, uh, you have this more of a Cold War situation of Vampire the Requiem, which is very interesting to then tie into Vampire the Masquerade. So you will still keep, say, the Camarilla and the Sabbat in their, their hot war situation, and the Anarchs as well now, but you can have these secret societies, or even open societies, uh, working with and within these sects. And that allows you a lot of interplay between, say, uh, La Zambra, Circle of the Crone, uh, in the Sabbat, and members that are also part of the Camarilla, uh, perhaps Tremere, doing their own uh, unique blood magic research. And I really like these guys. I actually used them in a Vampire the Masquerade game, uh, which was set in Boston, the United States. And it was very focused on the Tremere and the Giovanni, and I wanted a third magical faction to uh, basically just create some diversity and not make it just a two-sided, or one-sided fight between these two forces and put in the circle of the crone and it worked great. And if you're interested in different types of blood magic and if you wanted to represent the variety of thaumaturgy that is available in Masquerade and you want to port that back into uh, using the, the Chronicles of Darkness and Requiem framework, uh, a great book is uh, Sacraments and Blasphemies. Yep. That came out, which is basically how to make your own forms of blood magic uh, built off five pillars of, of how magic works. I think it was like destruction, creation. Oh, it's a long list, but again, a very good book that also has uh, in, is informative if you're interested in the Lankate Sanctum, who also do a different type of vampiric magic known as Thaban sorcery. Um, yeah, I think the Circle of Prime would be great against the Tremere, great against the Giovanni. Uh, you know, rivals for certain occult artifacts or uh, or occult knowledge. And speaking of the Lankaya yeah. Sanctum, here we go. Anyone like them? Are they a favorite of anyone's? Yeah, for anyone you know, heard you really of you? Had a What do you enjoy about them? Well, it's um, in my opinion, it's the opportunity to the the, the variety you could play. You could play. You could focus on a on a different cult to play against it, but you could also play against the uh, Evictors and Exactly. Uh, you, have, you have lots of opportunity even to play inside the com complete card so you normally doesn't don't even need a, 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 a domain. That's brilliant you said that because in my own Requiem game I've done season after season of it. Well it takes a while, but I've done the first two seasons of the game. The first season 
the players were very street level, and they were dealing with, in this case it was the Carthians, but they were dealing just with the politics of that, and then slowly learning about the other covenants and going, why are they getting involved in our political crap? That's the last thing we need. And they were learning how the, the power structure of the Carthians was split up. But then the game expanded outwards, like, a, like different shells of an onion, and the, the world is bigger for them. And now they're having to deal with the other covenants. And of course, at a certain level, they will get to a larger game scale where they realize bigger things are on offer and there are bigger threats out there than just that lowly Carthian who wants an anarcho-syndicate rather than a board of elected representatives or something like that. But yeah, you, you're right, with the Lancaster Sanctum, there's a lot of factions within them because they are, they, they believe in, uh, they're based, you know, they're, their faith is based on Christianity, but then also there are other monotheistic faiths that, that are entered into them. So you've got these creeds, the Westminster Creed, the Catholic, whatever's the equivalent of the Catholic creed, I can't remember what the name of that one is. Uh, there's a more Islamic creed, uh, there's a more Jewish creed, and so again, you can explore within the game that faith from various, many different angles, and as Mike said with the Circle of Crime, you can do the same thing with the Lancaster Sanctum. You, know, you can have your political, big political factions, like the Camarilla, like the Sabbat, like the Anarchs, and have this church that kind of has its spider web around them. So while people may not get on along politically, in terms of their faith, they, ha they do have some agreement. And of course that generates more interesting social drama and conflict. Um, what else can we say about these guys? We said about Greeks, we yeah, said about Thaban sorcery. It's yeah. much like the Karak, but again, there's different flavors of it. I believe there's a chance that Thaban sorcery is in some way related to the magic of maybe Mummy the Curse, possibly. Uh, so again, there's ways to incorporate other elements of the world in that. Um, what did you want to say about the True Black Hand? Uh, you actually put that in there. I was very confused about it, but it would be very interesting to have the uh, True Black Hand, the Manus Negrum of uh, Vampire the Masquerade, Using this sort of uh, a Christian sorcery, uh, that would be very different for them, especially how they were uh, originally based off of the Euthanatos in uh, basically modern-day Iraq. Um, and yeah, with the Islamic vampires, again, it gives you a chance of going, well, I want to explore that form of faith with my character, but I don't want to be an Asmite. And this way it gives you a way of having uh, uh, at least a framework to have that social network they may well be involved in without having to be uh, the stereotype of a bunch of fast, sneaky assassins that are diabolizing people. Um, oh, we love the Autodracle. Yeah. Uh, so if you've listened to the podcast or you've spoke to me, you'll know that uh, by day I am a, uh, by training I'm a chemist. Uh, I do theoretical chemistry, but I've got background in chemistry. So the Autodracle I love because they do blood alchemy, which is completely different to disciplines and completely different to blood magic. Uh, so that's again, it's like it's just literally small kind of mechanical uh, mechanical ways of doing of making salves and uh, elixirs that they can use to put on items or to use against and poison other vampires, etc. So again, that's a new thing you can explore if you want to think about them as a political faction. Again, think about well, how would they work internally? They would have rival schools of philosophical thought. 
uh, re rival research departments, you could think about it. They would get together and show, well, this is my new project. Here is a ghoul, and I will do vivisection live for you and show that I have created this new, this new alchemical salve. And you can see right here that blood is coagulating in a very curious manner that could be weaponized to use against our enemies. So they have a very scientific approach to the vampiric condition because they want to overcome it. They don't see it, they, it is a curse that they want to overcome. And their founder is quite cool. Do you want to talk about Dracula? Uh, you know more about it than I do. So Dracula is an interesting character in Vampire the Requiem because he may or may not have been turned by a vampire. No one knows who or which clan that vampire was. And there is just the chance that he was spontaneously turned into a vampire by God. Hence why he wants to uh, get some good old revenge and overcome the weaknesses of being burnt by sunlight, you know, fire, needing to constantly feed on blood, all those things. So that, that's where the origin of the Autodracula are. So again, you've got, also you've kind of got the, the kind of Victorian occultism is built into it as well. Um, so again, you know, those schools, you can just imagine you've got one school of, uh, of the Autodracula in the Camarilla, and then they've got a rival group in the Sabbat, or in another city even, and they're all furiously working on some strange research project, and they're doing some espionage on each other, and they're stealing stuff, and they're sabotaging their projects, and oh no, this, this strange blood has gone out into the world and it's created this dangerous bloodline of vampires that if we don't eliminate them are spreading, well in this day and age, uh, some brand new form of, I don't know, hepatitis D is a very foul blood disease to have out there. Uh, they've also got coils, which again is not blood magic and it's not uh, alchemy. Um, it's a way of while, they, while the Autodracal uh, does research, they also contemplate on what, it, what their soul is. So it's a way of changing themselves to overcome the weaknesses of vampires, which is not tied to blood potency. So again, like you can become more powerful as you age because your blood thickens, okay? Because there's no generation in the game, in, in Requiem. But as your blood thins when you go to sleep, have torpor, um, you know, you, you're not going to access your high-level disciplines anymore, which is boo-hoo, sorry for that vampire. But your coils remain with you because essentially you're soul-crafting. You are taking your corrupted, withered husk of a human soul and you are forging it into this perfect vampire that no longer has the weaknesses of their curse. And I think the, the Sabbat, some people in Sabbat, I think they would live for that kind of thing. They're also a great opportunity to interact with ghosts, werewolves, and mages because they look for things called uh, loci, and they follow dragon lines, so you know um, ley lines. Yeah. And of course, those happen to be on certain sites where werewolves gather. That's an important thing to say about Requiem. Vampires and werewolves are not automatic enemies. It is completely plausible that uh, a chantry of Autodracul quite happily hires out vampires to be, uh, not werewolves, to be bodyguards at their, their meetup to show their latest scientific advances. True. Although I did hear that last night in Enlightenment of Blood, there were a bunch of werewolves defending a prince, so it anything happens. can happen in the world of darkness. So, moving on from there, 
Let's get into a, a <laughs> spicy hot take here. All right. So that was a little, a little pedestrian before, just kind of reviewing some of the, the basic elements and uh, plans and covenants of Vampire the Requiem. But we really want to take some like very cool, unique ideas about the metaphysics of this game and show you how to bring it into Vampire the Masquerade to just make it a, a, a new, uh, slightly more reinvigorated uh, game for you to play. Now, we're just going to set up a couple of uh, elements of Vampire the Requiem and move on from there. So, in Requiem, as it's published, even, even outside the game mechanics, the only truth is the core book. All the supplements that are released from there, it's all optional material. So, because of this, they publish a lot of different ideas, concepts, which may be conflicting in, uh, in later source books. Uh, but the other cool thing is that a lot of the writers pick up on the good ideas and they keep carrying them forward with new stories and new concepts as they go. Uh, so, in the actual core book of Vampire the Requiem, uh, the origin of all the clans and vampires themselves is unknown. Uh, even the, the youngest clan, which is the Ventru, they know that they appeared during the uh, late Roman Empire, but we don't really know where they came from. Uh, it's established as well that there's two clanless vampires, uh, Dracula probably being uh, clanless, and then also uh, Longinus. Yeah. Yeah. So there is precedent in the history that there are these individuals that become vampires without being embraced. So See, we all know who Longinus is uh, before we carry on. Everyone with our degree? Anyone that doesn't know who Longinus is? Longinus is uh, the Roman soldier that pierced Christ's uh, stomach with a spear. Since Blanca Sanctimus comes from that. So he's the origin of their, their position as being cursed by God, but being the walls of God. So the Blanca Sanctum, FYI, think they're doing God's... Uh, they're performing God's judgment on humans. They're, they're kind of sin eaters in that sense. Yes. But carrying on. Indeed. So uh, the second edition Vampire the Requiem core book establishes that it doesn't actually come out and say this, but Chris and I have a lot of theories, and we basically established that uh, vampires are dead souls inhabiting a body. Now, this is a very interesting. It's just a mechanism that we have uh, to explain the vampire, and you can see how some become uh, vampires because they've been embraced in the traditional sense you're familiar with in Vampire the Masquerade, drain their blood, give them a little beers, like that. But then we also have the mechettes that uh, Chris mentioned, and they can do the embrace from preserved bodies. Yeah, so I guess they have a ritual way of doing the embalming, which kind of, you could say, locks the soul in the body. And this also relates to how the Strix are involved in things, which we'll, we can get to later, I think. Mm -hmm. The Strix are related to vampires, they, are, they create vampires, and they will happily possess vampires as well. They are a scary, scary form of spirit that not even werewolves understand. So from that, uh, in addition to that, we have two uh, individuals that became vampires, not from the embrace. So it seems like that mechanism is there. And if you look into the clan books, again, not actually canonical, but optional, uh, there are some, they start giving hints that the clans may have uh, not originated from one progenitor, but from different progenitors, uh, different uh, origins, and one of the clans might not even originally have been human. It might have been something else. So, how can we use this in World of Darkness? Well, step one, let's just get rid of Cain. 
He's let's get rid of it. Um, and when we remove him, that gives us a lot more origin ideas in the world of darkness itself. Uh, of course, you know we have the classic Cain mythos of Vampire the Masquerade, but Kindred the uh, 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 Future of the Ebony Kingdom came out very late in the uh, World of Darkness line original run. Uh, it came out in I think 2003. It was the second to last hardcover, and it included a lot of very interesting origin stories for the Lybon, the uh, Kindred of Africa. But at that point, we already basically knew that Cain really did make all these vampires. They had already announced the Gehenna book, and then we got three scenarios of Cain being a jerk to everyone in the world and blowing it up. And then also Wormwood, which is a pretty cool one. So uh, removing Cain as an established truth from the universe can really help uh, allow you to explore those other live on origin stories. And of course, the country of the East have always been kind of a separate thing, but maybe by removing Cain, let's see if we can draw it all together. So the interesting thing in the world of darkness, as published, this is canonical, is that we have a mechanism which is very similar to that dead soul theory that we have in Vampire the Requiem. And that's the Risen from Wraith the Oblivion. So the Risen are these wraiths that use their Arkanoi and other powers and their fetters to re-inhabit typically their own body after they have died. So they basically come back from the dead. Uh, it was a ripoff of the Crow movie, but it's, it's a good book and very fitting for the world of darkness. And when you look through the Risen source book for Wraith, it's also actually a Vampire the Masquerade source book. There's a uh, number of rules uh, telling you how the Risen can interact with Kindred, including how the Risen can learn disciplines, specifically celerity, fortitude, potence, and obfuscate are the ones they can learn. They actually use uh, their pathos uh, energy trait to power these. But it's interesting that the book notes that you need to have a kindred instructor to learn these disciplines. So you can see there is definitely a link between how the Risen uh, work and also the, uh, the Cainites of uh, Western vampire mythos. Additionally, if you look in Kindred of the East, it says that the Kuei Jin are Risen. The same thing just uh, occurring in, uh, in the Far East. So we have a, a link right there, and anyone that's played uh, Kindred of the Ebony Kingdom knows that uh, Libon are very, very similar, have common origins with the Canaanites. And therefore, we can make this cheesy graphic right here, but it tells us a lot. It tells us a lot. So we can see that we have these risen, right? That's our big circle right there. And we can link all these different uh, undead types in the world of darkness, and it gives us a lot more stories to explore. So wraiths can interact as Risen. Quajin are related to Risen wraiths, as we know. Uh, I kind of linked together the Quajin, the Libon, and the Kindred in that way because the Libon have this, uh, this power trait, uh, or, or morality trait. It's very strange. It's called uh, you have I and you have Orin. Uh, and they're very similar to the uh, sort of yin-yang uh, traits that the Quajin have. Uh, very mechanically similar. That's an interesting link between them. And then I just threw mummies in there as well. But this can give you some ideas for how these different undead creatures can interact, just by removing Cain and taking a couple ideas from Vampire the Requiem. Yeah? Yeah. So, 
Yeah, a uh, couple other ideas. We talked about uh, it'd be interesting to make the Ventrue a usurper clan. I wrote that down and then realized that we have like three examples of that in Vampire the Masquerade already. But if you're interested in Requiem, uh, if you can look at the, if you're interested in the uh, historical setting called Requiem for Rome, which is about the fall of the Camarilla, because Camarilla in Requiem was the Roman, you know, ancient Roman time society of vampires that lived in the catacombs of, of Rome. Uh, the Ventra were not a clan in that game, in that time period. You instead have the Julian, who essentially serve the same purpose. They, but they all apparently get killed off by the Strix, who have now come back in modern nights to cause havoc on all vampires. So again, there's an ongoing thing there. But you've got, again, two examples of, of two clans that serve entirely the same purposes and yet have that convergent evolution. Because I think the Ventra rumoured in Requiem to be, to have come from the Gangrel, which is interesting. Mm. Indeed. Uh, another idea that has nothing to do with either games that I've just been thinking about a whole lot is why aren't there Neanderthal vampires? I mean, there were Homo sapiens and Neanderthals simultaneously. Why couldn't uh, vampires exist? So that's just throwing it out there. I thought maybe Nasratu might have had some link for some reason. It's cool. Run with it if you want. Uh, and then also, removing the Cain mythos really helps us uh, make the world of darkness less, less Western-centric, having uh, more origins for vampires outside of Europe. Removing that common origin and separating out, out all these clans um, and assuming that there's this common mechanism from which a vampire and therefore a clan can be created uh, really just helps you make the world of darkness a bit more mysterious um, in a lot of ways. Spirit world origins. Um, what the hell did we mean about that one? I wrote it down, so I can <laughs> talk about it. Um, uh, yeah, so the idea was that you, what if we have these dead souls inhabiting, uh, inhabiting human bodies, similar to the, uh, the Strix that we were discussing, and perhaps the vampire clan originally came from some rogue spirits from the uh, spirit the, world, yeah. whether it's beyond the gauntlet uh, in World of the Apocalypse, or from the Abyss in Vampire the Masquerade, etc. Uh, it could be an interesting origin story for, say, the Lozabra, explaining their strange tenebrous powers. I was going to add to that that if you are interested in how vampires interact with ghosts, again, and you want to borrow some new disciplines, uh, in uh, Chronicles of Darkness, or at least before they renamed it that, there's a book called um, called my mind's gone black. What's the one for Geist? The expansion book, Book of the, the Dead. dead. Yep. And there's a discipline in there about how you interact with ghosts specifically, and how you how vampires can enter the underworld. So again, that might have some be very interesting to explore. There are things in the underworld called domains. Maybe that has some link to this how ghosts come up through the underworld and. Uh, Inhabit these dead bodies, surely. And okay, uh, anyone played Forsaken? Okay, yeah. Okay, so uh, again, what do we know about Apocalypse? Uh, all the tribes are based on some sort of ethnic group. Okay, Forsaken basically got rid of that. So the idea is that you again are looking at specific archetypes of werewolves. Uh, you've got werewolves that. T uh, that, um, that so you've got the you've got the classic auspices that tell you about how your how your powers emerge. But you've also got totems uh, for their tribes, and that's really not about 
It's got nothing to do with their ethnicity. It's got nothing to do with the part of the world they're from. It's about their philosophy, about what it means to be a werewolf. What is your role in the world when Father Wolf was killed off, this great spirit that, that roamed the, uh, the, the, the wall between our world and the spirit world to keep the balance. And so how do the Forsaken Wells fit into that role to keep the balance? What do they hunt? So some, one tribe focuses on hunting spirits, another one is about control, making sure humans don't cause an imbalance, another lot is about hunting other werewolves, because yes, there is an antagonistic faction of werewolves and they are complete psychopaths. Um, and so you get that idea. So the tribes are about a philosophy of what does it mean to be a werewolf? What is the hunt that I am on? So again, if you took the tribes as your starting point in Apocalypse, because you don't feel comfortable that one of them is a bit of a stereotype of Irish people, because let's be honest, that's a bit dodgy. Um, but you can always come back to those ideas, those ethnic groups, because Forsaken has lodges. And lodges are regional groups that can have some link to an ethnicity and how that, that folklore and history comes through into their powers, their rituals, and how they take their philosophy of the hunt and then put it into a final interpretation of how they live their lives and how they build their packs. And possibly how they make friends with other lodges, other tribes. Um, and also, because you've got the, tri because you've got the tribes as being a philosophy on hunting, that means it's ideal to have packs that are made up of different tribes because you go, well, we've got the two werewolves that are really good at like control, you know, hunting down spirits, but we also need to have the werewolf that's very good at uh, dealing with the other weirder things in the world. And we've got the one that's very good at dealing with mortals and hunting that and keeping the balance. So you grab those elements and then you get the benefits of their various totem spirits and so forth. So you get a lot of diversity, you can explore the world in a, in a larger way. Now, anyone know what the God Machine is? The God Machine is in Chronicles of Darkness, is an eldritch entity that is technostic in nature. It is taking what we consider the world as we know, cities, streets, lights, everything around us. And we think it's just what we built, but it uses it in what it calls occult matrices. The, why why a, a building is built the way it is? Why are there all these buildings built in a circle? Why have these strange murders occurred? These are all part of the God Machine's plan to converge energy in the world to bring about what it wants. To, it, it's basically using us as it's kind of a, a way of getting magical energy to bring into being more of its angels or, uh, or to build new infrastructure to converge more energy for a bigger project or to conceal projects and so forth. So the God Machine, you could slot in as the, uh, as the, uh, the weaver. Um, and then you can think about, well, how does that relate to the worm? And there's these wonderful, wonderful spirits called uh, the Idigum. I don't know whether we talk about it later. I may be jumping the gun on this. Um, but I think the point is, by taking the God Machine and taking these other bits, you can maybe refresh the whole Weaver Wild Worm trinity and add some new elements in there, some new antagonists. You go, oh, I really like these crazy machine angels. That aren't, they're not angels of, of, of uh, Jehovah, you know, the classic Christian God. These are strange machine 
angels that can alter reality on a level that mages would love to be able to do. They can rewrite whole swathes of a city and have an entire blocks just deleted or, or made. Or uh, you may go in, or, or poor old Wells may go into some strange building going, there's a lot of interest in this place, what's going on? They go down, go into the furnace, and there in the furnace, they're expecting it's the boiler room of this building, but there, linked up to all this strange contraption, strange technology, there's an actual human beating heart that's powering some strange infrastructure. So it's very Cronenberg kind of merging of technology and flesh and, and so forth in a, in a really eldritch kind of scary way. Father Wolf is kind of cool. Um, he was the original wolf spirit that kept the balance. And again, you could possibly explore the idea that when he was killed, um, because he destroys spirits to keep the balance, maybe it's his echo, his final scream that shattered Pangaea separated our world from the spirits, uh, well, and brought about the, the gauntlet. Maybe it's his death echo that is the worm, that final desire to destroy everything. Um, yeah, the pure uh, are just uh, antagonistic werewolves to, uh, again, you can explore their, oh, come on. They're similar to the Black Spiral Dancers, but you can actually talk to them, and they're like, seem like they might be cool, and you can make peace with them. But uh, they're usually very fanatical in a uh, number of ideological reasons. The firebranded are yeah. quite religious in their worship of uh, spirits and, and father wolf. You've um, also got bellhounds, which are basically more, far more towards the demonic evil yeah. werewolf. Uh, and then Blood of the Wolf is a brilliant book that is really talking about the biology of being a werewolf. What if you're pregnant and you shapeshift? What's going on with that? It, yeah. it gives you answers to that. Yeah, uh, our co-host, Matt, is like our werewolf co correspondent, and he recommends Blow the Wolf to every Apocalypse player he knows. So it's definitely a great resource. And again, there is a translation guide, and you can go between the two games. So you go, I want to take Forsaken and take these ideas. I like them. I want to put them in Apocalypse, and you use that engine. Or you can do the other way around. So whatever you want, you can make the werewolf setting that will surprise your players. And they go, oh, it's clearly, the, it's clearly the Weaver. And it's like, what the hell is this machine angel that's suddenly come along and, I don't know, opening doors like Agent Smith does into these weird realms and you're seeing cogs, you know, cranking around and you're wondering, well, how does this strange technology, because it, it defies the laws of science. And that, for me, that's one of the interesting things about it. We're at an age where we're so pushing the, the, the um, forefront of science, you get some strange stuff turning up. You have to make sense of it. Are we now at that point where we're going to pierce it and find something that doesn't make sense both in terms of science or even in terms of magic because it comes from something further away outside of our world? Yeah. Uh, we only have 15 minutes left, so we should oh, wow. rapid fire. Okay, so yeah, we said God Machine, Weaver, yeah, Technostic Angels, cool new enemy, uh, infrastructure, uh, as I say, you can explore those. They may be on loci, you know, a can has been bulldozed and turned into infrastructure of some form, and you want to know why. Uh, and the apocalypse uh, makes these infrastructure more aggressive. So there are examples of infrastructure that are actually angels. So they are, be they are, um, they are like angels in building form, which is a bit strange. But you can imagine, like you pe you peel away the concrete of this wall, and behind there is a fleshy membrane, and. Through it is the silvery blood of this uh, this god machine's angel, um, and of course you know 
with the god machine going a bit crazy with the apocalypse, maybe it's creating new spirits that are going a bit crazy. So again, there's mimetic. The god machine doesn't use angels all the time to get its way. It uses smaller things that are essentially like a, a meme. But some of these memes don't terminate. They do their programming, and they should go home. Some don't, and they go around, and that's why you get serial killers and other things. And of course, once you've got serial killers, you're going to get spirits that just love the killing. Yeah, the problem with these subroutines is that, as a werewolf, you can't punch them. So you need to figure out a different way to kind of solve this problem. You might as have to learn how to terminate the program properly. Yes, whether by using other spirits that you know. That's a very common theme in uh, uh, Werewolf of Forsaken is working with uh, and making deals with spirits to try to achieve your goals. Uh, and in addition to that, you could also be just attacking the god machine infrastructure. Um, what's that slide? I can't remember these days. Uh, yeah, Idigum. Uh, okay, so the Idigum, they are spirits that preceded Pangaea. They are things that they... they so you know really like a, a spirit, you've got spirit of foxes or the spirit of an idea. They are things that don't have an idea. They don't have a reflection in our world. They are amorphous and for because of that, they are very, very dangerous. They're kind of like um, never born in that way, aren't they? Mm -hmm. um, so what happened in Forsaken is that he defeated them and he banished them with um, with Luna's help to the dark world to the moon. Okay. Of course, what did man do? He went to the moon. Those spirits learned something. It's called the spirits of rockets. And they consumed them and they came home. And now you have all these tribes of werewolves and they've been happily killing spirits. They have all these strange new ones that are amorphous and can change what form they're going to take, what idea they take. And these ideas can be very, again, eldritch in nature. You can get that kind of Cthulhu horror in there. Yeah. But they can all be the fr all bit different bits of fractured parts of... Uh, Father Wolf. So rather than him, him banishing the Edigum, maybe when he died and he screamed, they were brought into being and they were birthed on Luna, who was his consort. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you've got some new renown that you can explore. Uh, is that? I don't know what's going on with the font there. Um, obviously, so Vampire has humanity trait, and one thing that goes through all Chronicles of Darkness games is you have integrity, if you're a human, or the equivalent in your game line. So you have a morality stat, okay? I think morality stat, or a balance stat. So for vampires, it's, it's a measure of how well do you interact with humans? Can you, how well do you pass as a human? The nice thing about that, the higher it is, actually, you can sometimes uh, negate some of the, the limitations of being a vampire. For werewolves, am I more human, or am I more spirit? Certainly, if you go to one extreme or the other, there are benefits and there are problems. Uh, with a mage, it's hubris. With geist, it's the balance between your, your human soul and your conjoined ghostly geist soul. We can talk about that another time. Yeah. So again, you've got harmony, and that can, again, the translation guide has got how you can utilize that in Forsaken. Because if you think your, your Forsaken players have it, uh, your Republic's players have it, an easy time, they just kill things, and what's the repercussion? You want something that they can. You, they, they have something that's mechanical and visual. They can see on the stat, I'm going a bit too spirit. I need to reconnect with my humanity. It is there mechanically. So maybe it'll work for you. Uh, yeah. Okay, mage. Yeah, surprise, surprise, because we've now said it so many times. Let's replace the traditions with the pentacle order. So again, it's about rather than being 
related to any form of ethnicity because exoticism is a problem with classic white wolf. Um, we take the pentacle orders, which is an approach. They're, they're tied to particular ways of approaching the magical world, and they're not tied to any form of ethnicity because they reflect a time when magic was in the world, which is Atlantis. I use Atlantis like this. It's a legend, okay? First edition mage uh, uh, awakening screwed that up big time. They addressed it, and there are multiple different things. There's New, Lemuria, there's all these different places. It may not have even been a real place. The Pentacle Order is, is just a, a built off legends, and they have no tie to this ancient group. So again, there are things called legacies. We turn the traditions into legacies. Again, this is all in the translation guide. These are ideas. I, even before all this, when Mage of the Awakening came out, I think I'm hands down known as the person that made the first leg fan-made legacy, which was taking the virtual adepts and putting them into Mage the Awakening. I think I called them zero coders back in the day. Uh, yeah, uh, the Awakening magic system, as we said, the great thing about the core book is they have tons and tons and tons of spells written in there, unlike Ascension books, which were... Yeah, that's a definitely a good thing to cover real quick. So, for those of you that have played Mage the Ascension, you know that you've got the sphere system and then maybe a couple examples in the book. Uh, you might... I was for a long time very confused about uh, what was coincidental magic or not, mm. vulgar and uh, the like. And it's just, it's very vague. Um, they do have a great new book for Mage the Ascension, which is like, how do you do this? Which really goes down and uh, explains the magic. But Mage the Awakening still has that freeform system, but is much more dependent on rotes. Rotes uh, mechanically make magic much, much easier. And one of the cool themes about the Mage the Awakening setting is going, delving into the past, doing like Xeno archeology, span going to, um, fragments of history that still exist in the spirit world to try to find an old spell, an old grimoire filled mm. with these different ropes. Um, so that's really neat and very fun. So we call them the Pentacle Orders. There are five of them in Mage Awakening, one of which is the Free Council, who are a modern group. Uh, they used to be called the Nameless. And if you read into the lore of Mage Awakening, and then you draw some parallels to uh, Ascension, you realize they're almost like there's a point in their history that if the Free Council had made the deal with the big antagonist of the game called the Seers of the Throne, who basically ascended reality to the thrones of, 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 to the thrones of reality, they control the cage that humanity is trapped within. If the Free Council had made that deal and used the magic of the cage, you know, the, um, the technology that we create, they would have become the technocracy and they would have rewritten reality wholesale and we would have had this Ascension as we know it. So that's the parallel I draw between them. And again, you can make use of the you can you can make use of uh, the Free Council and their roads and use them for your technocrats if you're using uh, Awakening as your rule set. Um, and of course, then legacies are your conventions, and then you've got the path system. Both factions use the path system again. Yeah. Um, is that all? Is it? This is the big thing. So um, Chronicles of Darkness looks at different levels of game and it actually talks about these as different ways you can interact with the setting. So we did our remix and we like the Seers of the Throne because they, they make the technocracy look like puppies, right? Technocracy are cute. We played Technocrats last night and we're there because we want to help humanity out. The Seers of the Throne don't give a damn about humanity. We are ways of just channeling energy to the magical essence. 
So your street level game is still the Ascension Walk. But the lie, the lie that the Seers of the Throne created is the battle for reality. They created that battle to control mages wholesale. So what if the techno you've got technocrats and tradition mages that suddenly realise the whole point of the Ascension War is not to control reality as they know it. They're just painting pictures inside their jail cell. Because the real bad guys, the real people that control everything, are the seers of the throne. So now you have a new scale of interaction with your setting, which is where technocrats and traditions awaken to the real, the real truth, which is their magic, whichever type you take, is actually coming from the cage of reality they're in. And it's time to take that fight back to the very people that put you in that cage. Likewise, it's a really cool scene halfway through your chronicle that, you know, you've been going through all this work, mages doing their research, and this mage finally ascends. He does it, he creates his own control of reality, and then he finds these seers of the throne who just punk him and send him back down to Earth. It would be very fun as you learn about this uh, terrible secret of space and have uh, a new antagonist to explore and uh, work against. So the Seers of the Throne also have mages that work for them and they're part of these ministries. So there's good reason the ministries would have infiltrated traditions and also the technocracy. You've got one group that's about money, one group is about observation, another group is about using war as a way of controlling people, another group is about using uh, monotheistic religion to control people. Oh, these things fit both technocrats and tradition mages. Surprise, bloody surprise. So it changes some metaphysics um, when you realize that the war for reality uh, is a cage that's being used against you. So the idea that you could play the game where if your mages have that moment where they realize that the war is a lie, then you could change the, that, that realization changes what paradox does to them. Paradox initially is, is what it's kind of a game the seers put in there, like, yeah, you can do your magic, but we're going to punish you, because it's the way to keep you away from the, the truth. But once you get past that, you're now up against a new paradox, which is because you're now breaching the shell of reality, going back to the supernal realms where magic comes down from. But in doing so, you have to cross the abyss, which is this uh, vast, empty, anti-reality, and if you try and pull too much magic down from there, which is obviously going to be even more powerful for you, you're going to bring some other scary spirits in there that just don't want to play nice. Um, and also the God Machine, yes! Uh, the God Machine is an asshole and potentially could be a tool of the Seas of the Throne. He, they, they are the people pushing the buttons, and he is just the machine that is keeping the cage alive. Yeah, you can also bring Demon of Descent in, and again, you, that means you can get those Techno Angels in. Uh, Demon of Descent and Technocrats, uh, sorry, and Mages work together really well because much. So while Mages, you can real, you can think of as hackers of reality. Demons and Angels have the root code. They know all the back doors. They know all the exploits. They're not changing reality. They know the laws which mages can't even see yet. Uh, so demons and mages will are perfect allies in their war. Uh, and yeah, technocrats would have a new way of viewing technology because it's the magic of the cage of 
the science part of the case rather than the, 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 the occult side of it. So again, they would have a huge realisation and they'd have to reevaluate how their magic and the god machine interact. Hmm. Actually, just playing along with that, uh, typically, so we have this magic inside the cage, uh, which you're interacting with and what, what comes in. But outside of that, outside of the control of the Seers of the Throne, it's really just utter chaos, which plays in very well with the Marauders. Oh, yeah. I want to explain it that way. So, anything else? Uh, okay, just further ideas. God Machine, obviously. Obviously, mostly has a great interest in the Iteration X, Autochthonia, obviously. It's all just a dupe. It's one big piece of infrastructure. Um, the digital web may well be tapping into the occult matrix of the god machine, and yeah, as I said, you know, technocrats will have a great revelation. That's another one. So yeah, that is it. So um, other members of our team, uh, Chig, as we call him, uh, Matt Breeze, Pete Mars, uh, my mate James, uh, my wife Sam, David McWilliam, who uh, also podcasts with me on Network Zero, which is our Chronicles of Darkness focused podcast. Obviously, White Wolf for. Let's come here and drink their free beer that first night. Uh, Honest Math Publishing, because they happily come on and do interviews with us. And Dave Brookshaw loves talking about his stuff, and he's got great ideas about how everything of Chronicles of Dance fits together. And it wouldn't be without those ideas that we could think up this stuff. Uh, obviously, PDA for inviting us. And Beast of War, obviously, we're live blogging, and we'll get, the, uh, we'll get our live stream up there. And also, because we're recording this, and these slides are online, you can listen to all our crap again and go through the slides and really internalize it and really look at those bits, look at those books. And if you've got questions, email us. You know, it's a big discussion. Ultimately, the main point is make the game your own. Just because a book has, has a green cover and another book has a red cover doesn't mean you can't have tons of fun, okay? So make it your own. And that's all, so thank you. Yep. This has been an episode of Darker Days Radio. Special thanks to Occam's Laser for the intro, outro, and new bumper music from their hit album, Nine Circles. Check out the rest of their work at occamslaser.bandcamp.com.